This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. And there you can suggest both guests and questions for future episodes. I would love to see you there. However, to the episode today, and I've wanted to have this guest on the show for a very long time. And so with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Ryan Benici, CMO at G2, the company that allows you to get the right software and services for your business with over 897,000 user reviews to help you make smarter buying decisions. As for Ryan, prior to G2, he was Senior Director of Global marketing at HubSpot, where among many other achievements, he scaled HubSpot's marketing-generated sales revenue by 330% year over year. Before HubSpot, Ryan was head of marketing at Salesforce APAC, where he led his team to achieve 227% year-on-new net new sales sourced through marketing. Due to his incredible success, Ryan's also been named to Forbes' list of world's most influential CMOs. And I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Ryan Barreto, Goddard Abel, and Tim Cobb for providing some fantastic question suggestions today. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Chorus.ai, the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that close deals and really work. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps way more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, Adderall, and many more amazing companies already using and loving Chorus. That's Chorus.ai. And if Chorus powers your sales team to be more effective, we need to discuss Pantheon, the web ops platform built for agility. Pantheon powers more than 300,000 websites, including some of the most well-known brands like Tableau and the United Nations. Pantheon's web ops platform gives superpowers to your web teams, making it simple to manage your websites, quickly iterate, and optimize to deliver engaging digital experiences and provide the fastest hosting and highest level of security and uptime. And finally, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to David J, founder at Agree.com. Agree.com provides attorney-approved contracts and payments for businesses and creatives. Smart creatives and businesses use Agree.com to make their business serve their life, not the other way around. Hi, Harry. The holy grail is creating a feedback loop early in a product development process. Building a product is kind of like baking cookies. So you get the MVP out there. That's the cookie dough. You let people try it. If they don't like the cookie dough, you can still add ingredients and change it up. But if you've already baked the cookie and you let people try it, well, now you can't make any changes because you can't rebake the cookie. Things start to crumble. Things start to fall apart. Absolutely love that analogy, David. And absolutely, being decisive is really important for successful growth. And for more on successful growth, WePay offers payments you can bank on. Now a JP Morgan Chase company, it offers you payments with bank scale and SMB distribution channels in addition to modern technology. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry to find out more. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough from me. So now I'm very, very excited to hand over to the very enigmatic Ryan Benici, CMO at G2. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Ryan, what can I say? I've been looking forward to this one for a very long time. I've heard so many great things from Aaron at Excel and then also the wonderful Goddard Abel. So thank you so much for joining me today, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Not at all, but I promise this will be Harry being the more confrontational and argumentative version as we just discussed. But I want to start today with some context. So how did you make your way from the wonderful world of Australia to become one of the leading CMOs in SaaS today with G2? 
Where do I even begin, man? I, I mean, I started my career about 10 years ago. I was a flight attendant with Qantas International, very random. Always knew when I was really young, probably like when I was like 12, that I wanted to be a CMO. And even to make things weirder, I knew that I wanted to be a CMO by 30. And so, yeah, I guess over the last 10 years, I've kind of like worked my way up and around. So starting my career in Australia with Qantas, then I moved to Microsoft. Then I moved to Exact Target, spent some great time there building the team out APAC. AT was then acquired by Salesforce, as you know, and spent a good another three or so years at Salesforce leading their APAC marketing. So across Japan, Singapore, Australia, and Asia. And then right about the time HubSpot was launching into APAC, they brought me on board as their first marketer. And then again, did the exact same thing I did with Salesforce at HubSpot. So built their APAC team. And then I got this really interesting opportunity to move over to the US with HubSpot and lead global marketing, global digital, global PR global brand campaigns and social and all that fun stuff. So yeah, jumped at that opportunity. And that was two and a half years ago now. And so yeah, in the last year and a half, joined G2 as their CMO. And you know what? I don't think I am looking back to Australia. Like I I fucking love it over here. And, um, (laughs) And you know, America has its issues for sure. But you know, someone in business and especially in tech, there's just so much opportunity. I love it. Like I I literally have never been happier, which is weird because I wasn't expecting to feel that way living in America. So there are a couple of things I want to unpack, and I didn't expect to go off schedule this early, but we're going for it. You said that about being a CM at 12, Ryan. Very yeah. interesting 12-year-old that you were. No, I'm, I'm a weirdo. Why the fuck did you want to be a CM at 12? Like, what was it in your mind that made it that attractive thing? You know, it's hard to say because, you know, my memory isn't perfect. It's actually far from perfect. I think it maybe had something to do with back then anyways, right? Which would have been, gosh, like 18 years ago. You know, digital marketing wasn't really really a thing. So I think most of my exposure to marketing was um, magazines, it was billboards, it was TV. And I think I just loved like the creativity of it, the storytelling elements of it. And I love that it just was so public. And I don't know, I th- you know, when I was younger, I wanted to also be a, a pop star and a, and a famous singer. I still <laughs> long to be like a famous celebrity, but you know, that's, that's never going to happen. Um, but so I don't know this, I feel like there was something about like being a CMO in the sense that you can kind of be behind the scenes of celebrity-esque brands, right? If you do a really good job. So I don't know. That's just, that's kind of like my assessment of why I liked it back then, but who knows? You mentioned the kind of storytelling element there. And I absolutely, I'm, I'm with you in terms of that being my passion point within the world of marketing. But today it's so much around kind of A-B testing, data centricity, process orientation. I have to ask, in today's marketing world, have we lost maybe the art of marketing? And is it now a science? I don't think so. I mean, I think like in marketing in general, no. I mean, B2B marketing, yes, I think I would agree with that a lot more. And I'd say probably in B2C, it's quite the opposite, right? B2C is so much more about storytelling because of the big campaigns, uh, the big sorry, um, budgets that folks have. I think part of what happens like with anything, right? Like when you go too far in one directions to creative advertising old school, um, when a market self-corrects, it then typically self-corrects and over-indexes in the other way. And so I think we're starting to kind of like index backwards from the hyper focus on demand generation and numerical kind of scientific explanations to now actually realizing that like that stuff works when you have the right story in place but you know you can't just like a b test your way to the right story you really need to have someone that can think more conceptually about positioning in your unique selling point and so much more Mm-hmm. So they work hand in hand, but I think like, yeah, we, we definitely went a little bit too far in one direction. No, I do totally agree with you in terms of going to find that one direction. But I, I do want to 
to pick up on some of the elements that you mentioned there in the kind of intro to today and where you are. And a lot of it is really around kind of you worked at Salesforce and then also HubSpot, both in kind of the hyper growth phase. So what are the core differences in marketing for behemoths like Salesforce and then your HubSpot of the world to now like a true startup with G2? What are the differences? I've kind of always viewed my career, Harry, I guess, as like, I always want to go to a company whereby like, I don't know that much about what I'm going to be doing, which kind of sounds like really counterintuitive. So when I was at Microsoft, I was doing consumer marketing. And then when I moved to Exact Target, I was doing B2B. And so when I then joined Salesforce, Salesforce is very much like enterprise B2B marketing, right? So like, you know, we were doing super high touch marketing activities in the sense of, you know, CMO events where we would like rent a private jet and take 25 CMOs on a day trip somewhere. And it was all about relationship building with our sales reps, which is a super, super useful tactic. It works really well. We would generate 10x like what we invested into that based on those people. But it doesn't really scale when you're selling to the masses. And so for me, right, I, I want to run my own business in the not so distant future. And so I knew that like I wouldn't when starting my own company have, you know, a $10 million marketing budget to just go and start organizing private jets to do CMO events. And so I kind of realized that, hey, like I needed to build those skills around inbound marketing, really ROI-focused marketing that compounds, that's cost-effective, and that really works. And so that was where I was like, hey, I love HubSpot's product, and I fucking love the way they market. And so I wanted to become an expert in that. And you know, for the first 6 to 12 months, like I was just in like learning mode. And then I think it was from like month 12 to 24, that was really where like I then felt like I started to push the needle forward for HubSpot in terms of what inbound marketing was, because I had learned as much as I needed to. And I kind of view that with all of the companies that I moved to is like the first six to 12 months, like I am getting up to speed in what I didn't know. Then when I can kind of connect what I didn't know in this new role with all of the stuff that I do know from my previous roles, I think that makes me then better than other folks that are coming in with just like one skill set in that one space because they've always done the same type of marketing. I love that in terms of the accumulation of knowledge. I do want to pick up, you said there about kind of your admiration for HubSpot in terms of their marketing going into the role. Pronounce, what did you love so much about their marketing that kind of inspired you to take the position and also be so excited to move forward with them. I think, you know, it's a bit meta, but, you know, as a, as a marketer, you know, HubSpot marketed to marketers and, you know, most of the companies that I've worked for, marketers have been my target audience. And so I think it just naturally felt right to me because I'd already been consuming a lot of their content organically because I was, you know, a marketer and I was going to Google and I was searching for things that I was doing within my job, whether it was writing a press release or organizing an event or, you know, testing subject lines and HubSpot was always there to help me up level. And so I think that's just naturally why it made sense to me of this is a cool company, not only in product, but also just from a philosophical point of view. I also did hear from uh, Tim about kind of your time at HubSpot and how you, as you said, kind of moved the needle, especially on the inbound side. Can I ask, what did you do there that you think worked super well? And was there a big takeaway for you from moving the needle on the inbound side for HubSpot? Yeah, sure. So I mean, the way that HubSpot and I guess most companies kind of think about some of this is that so I was in region, I was in Asia Pacific based in Sydney. And so for the first year, actually, I didn't really do anything. None of the regions really do anything to drive inbound in the original sense of the word. So inbound meaning blog traffic, because we had a massive and an amazing content team over at headquarters in Boston at HubSpot. So that first year, I was really fortunate to be able to like already have a lot of visitors from APAC coming to the site because of all of the US 
US global English content. And so my team's role was actually really much more middle and bottom of funnel in that first year. It was about these people that have already been pulled in. How do I now convert them into marketing qualified leads for our local sales teams? So I kind of did that in that first year. And it wasn't until about like maybe 12 months in where, you know, we were crushing our numbers, doing a really good job there. And, and I start to get bored when I'm hitting my goals. And so that's when I start to like putting my fingers in other people's pies in whatever business I'm in and starting to explore and just see like, okay, like where is there a problem that needs fixing? Because I like fixing meaty problems. And I realized at that point, 12 months in that, you know, our blog traffic and our leads had flatlined in the sense of comparative to where they were, you know, the years prior. And so that kind of made me like do this massive sort of content research project over a couple of months where I basically, I wrote a really in-depth article about this for Entrepreneur Magazine, but how I like exported basically all of their GA data, all of their CRM data and connected it all up and basically worked out that like there was a bunch of topics that we were writing, creating content about, whereby we'd already reached like our ceiling for the total number of eyeballs of people searching for those topics. So that kind of then led me to start to research what are some other areas that we have never gone down into because they don't seem like they're connected to our product. But in fact, our buyer, marketers, business people actually goes to Google and searches for maybe even when they're not looking for marketing automation. And that was kind of really the project that led to my team in Sydney building HubSpot's first true lead gen free tool, which was HubSpot's free email signature generator, which cost us $6,000 and within a couple of years drove more than $64 million in net new revenue, completely organically without any advertising. And it was because we saw a need that we hadn't created content or a free product to solve. And it was that 70,000 people every month were going to Google and searching for email signature, email signature template, email signature generator. So we created a really cool free version that then, you know, naturally all the things that go into your email signature is a lead form. So it was just a beautiful lead generator for us. And then we started building HubSpot's out of office email reply generator because there's even more people, like hundreds of thousands every month that go on vacation and they go to Google and they search for an out of office email template. So we created an out of office email template builder. And that was around the time that I left. And then, you know, since then HubSpot has built an invoice generator and a bunch of other things. So, you know, that was to your question. Sorry, that was a bit of a long winded response, but that was sort of kind of like my journey towards driving impact for HubSpot on like the inbound side. No, I absolutely love it. And uh, I did love the article in Entrepreneur. I, I do have to ask, you said there about your process in terms of the conversion from SQL to MQL and how you thought about that. And you've seen that across multiple different companies now. I'm interested, where do you see the most common breakdowns in the workings of an efficient funnel? And how do you think about that? To your question, like the most common breakdowns in an efficient funnel, I think the most common breakdown actually has really nothing in my mind to do with the funnel. It has to do with the relationship between sales and marketing and making sure that they are bought into what metrics each are going to be you know, contributing and owning with 100% responsibility. And so I think out of any business that I've consulted with or marketers that I've spoke to, that's really the most common breakdown because if that's broken, then naturally other things within the actual funnel itself will be broken. Let's dive on that then. For you today as CMG2, how do you think about creating a really tight relationship between your sales and marketing team so the handoff is as seamless as it can be? So there's a few different things that we do at G2. I mean, first up, it's like when I joined, I immediately was like, okay, how can I get as much value for sales as possible, as quickly as possible to build rapport? And so very quickly, we set up automatic sales notifications and sales emails that basically would 
send out to sales reps as prospects if they were viewing our pricing page as an example. And so like these emails that a sales rep wouldn't realize because they weren't, they didn't have access to the buyer intent. They wouldn't realize that a prospect was on our pricing page. And so we would email them automatically on behalf of the sales rep, say, Hey, John, hope you're doing really well. I noticed you're on our pricing page and just wanted to see if you wanted to chat about anything. Those emails like had like an 80% email send to meeting book rate for the sales reps and they still do today. And so that's just like a little baby example of like when I joined one of the really quick things I did to build rapport and then immediately sales is like, fuck, this new CMO is awesome. We're getting like in front of these people, they're responding, they're booking time on my calendar as a sales rep. Normally I have to hassle people, but now they're actually booking time on my calendar because they received this really timely email from me, which, hey, they didn't even know was automated. So like, that's just like one little example, but I think you've got to just have skin in the game and truly believe that if sales doesn't hit, nobody hits. And so I've kind of always been a big believer in that. And so, you know, I will spend a lot of time early on, on sales calls, getting to listen to like what our prospects are saying, what sales is saying and helping them in that process and building together. And now fortunately, I've got an amazing VP of demand gen under me who does that. So I'm not as involved. The early days, like I was super involved in that. If a CRO and a CMO aren't aligned, that's really the only thing that can get a CMO fired in my mind. You can't get fired for like branding or anything like that because, you know, branding subjective, but demand and that relationship, I think is the most important thing. So yeah, I, I really focus on building that early on. No, I, I love that in terms of the importance of that relationship. The other element though, that you said was you kind of get antsy and look for other things when it's too easy to hit the targets, so to speak. Targets and kind of KPI setting in the marketing world is a really interesting one. We had Joe Chernoff from Pendle on the show and he said that you have to tie a marketing KPI fundamentally to revenue. How do you think about KPI setting for your marketing team? And do you agree that it has to be tied to a number directly related to revenue? I don't think every element of my team has to be, but the demand gen team that I mentioned before which is led by an amazing marketer on my team called Adam Goyette. So that team is, is it's you know, we're not handing over MQLs, right? I couldn't give a shit how many MQLs my team generates. Like I care about how much marketing sourced pipeline is my team sourcing for sales. And by sourcing, like I don't mean like they downloaded an ebook and then a salesperson had to call them and try and prospect them. I mean, literally someone has come to our site at some point and they've literally said, I want to speak to sales, like, or they've chatted with our, our chat bot and said, hey, I'm ready to speak to one of your consultants. So it's like someone properly raising their hand. And so, you know, I really care at the most about actually pure dollars in pipeline. And that number can't live unless a salesperson engages with that prospect and then, you know, assigns a dollar figure. So if it's a shitty person raising their hand, a $0 figure will get associated. So, you know, the MQL number in my mind is pointless. I mean, it's helpful to start to map out the funnel, but at the end of the day, it's about pipeline generated and then pipeline closed is really what I care. And, and I commit to, it varies dependent on the sales team, but for our growth and SMB sales team, like I think marketing sources around 80 to 90% of their total revenue for our mid-market team, it's maybe more like 40 to 50% of their revenue is sourced by marketing. And then our enterprise teams, it's maybe 10 to 20% sourced and then a really significant amount of influenced revenue. No, totally. And it's fascinating to hear that proportion weighting. I do want to ask, we spoke about kind of the relationship between marketing and sales. I'm seeing further and further this integration between almost customer success and marketing with the content that marketing is producing being pushed down and used in many customer success cases. How do you think about the relationship between marketing and customer success and maybe the integration of the two with the content and the services that marketing provides now? Yeah, I think they're connected. I, I don't think they're as connected though still today in most businesses just because most businesses are still like very ne- 
net new revenue focused. You know, where I think there's really natural crossovers is around customer marketing, obviously, and retention-based marketing practices. But I think, you know, most customer success forms typically, while they might get some help from marketing in terms of setting up their services system, which has like maybe their FAQs or their customer help databases and things like that, I think it still runs quite separately. Now, if you're a more consumer-focused org, then typically marketing will run all of that, right? Because marketing is the revenue function, marketing is the customer service function, etc. But, you know, in, in a more traditional B2B environment, I, I don't see there as, as much crossover, for better or worse. No, I do understand from that perspective. Can I ask, Ryan, when I listen to you in a lot of the cases, it just sounds all very logical and reasonable and almost a little bit easy. And so my question to you is, what's it's really... really fu- it's what's like marketing is fucking easy. <laughs> I was going to say, what's fucking hard? Great question. I think the hard things are... And I, I, this is going to sound arrogant because I don't find these hard, but I think they're they're more like taxing things to do. But I think hiring is hard in the sense of hiring is the most important thing that I view as my role as our CMO. I'm one of them like that. And I think helping drive our product forward is the other. But hiring, it's really not hard for me right now because I have hired an amazing team. So anything you see from G2 like has nothing to do with me anymore. It's that I've hired really fucking brilliant marketers. And that was brutal like last year. You know, I needed to start taking like Zoloft medication because I was so stressed because I was like hiring. It's really hard to hire great people, right? And so I met probably with like a thousand people last year to then eventually hire 70 of them. Getting to the team where it is today, right? When I started at G2, we had five marketers and now we have around 75 marketers. That was all recruited within like 14 months. So I don't, I'm not great at maths, but like that's a a lot of people every month. And so that was hell. That, That was hard. And you know what? I don't think most people find hiring that hard because they lower their standards and they don't have a really high bar for who they hire on their team, which is like what fucks them over in the long run. <laughs> Excuse my French again. Can I ask, that is a shit ton of people to interview. What did you learn in terms of what it takes to really discover and detect the best? And did you have methods or processes in terms of really determining beneath the BS whether someone's actually got the substance to do what they need to do? Yeah, you know, I, again, like I, I have to credit all of this to my old boss, Kip Bodner at, at HubSpot, who's their CMO, just for like training me around hiring. And by training me, I mean, he just would say no to everyone that I wanted to hire for years <laughs> until I eventually learned like what a good employee, like good marketer was. And so, I mean, I think we have a similar style, he and I now in terms of interviewing, like it's, I'm very much like about a case sort of format of interview. So I'll have a little bit of time at the beginning for small talk and I want to get to know them. I'll, I'll always ask like a very open-ended question, right? Like if I was interviewing you, Harry, I'd say like, Hey Harry, you know, I've stalked you on LinkedIn. I've gotten to know your background, but like, who is Harry? Tell me. And I'm wanting to know, like, are they going to tell me about professional Harry? Are they going to tell me about personal Harry? Like whatever they tell me and, or if they even ask for clarification of which one, like that tells me a lot about them. If they ask me which Harry they, I want to hear about, then I kind of know, okay, they're a little bit risk averse. Like they're not going to own it and just tell me about both or one. And if they don't tell me, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe they're a little bit more confident or naive or like, so I think I just learn a lot from that. And then I basically will go into like a really simple question, which is actually really hard is like, why were you hired at your company? Like, what was the problem that you were hired to solve? And if they can't articulate that very clearly, like, then they might say, well, you know, I was hired as the email marketing manager. I'm like, okay, um, what was the problem that you were trying to solve? If they can't connect and realize that email marketing manager is meant to drive revenue ultimately, like then I'm not going to hire them. I'm probably going to hang up 15 minutes later and I'll be really (laughs) friendly and nice. And I'll just say to them like, hey, really enjoy catching up with you. You're probably not the right person for this role because when I asked you about this 
Like what I was hoping for was this. Let me know if I've gotten anything wrong here, but like that's my perspective is that like you don't have enough experience here. Most of the time, like 90% they'll be like, you're right, I do need more experience there. And, and it always ends well. And sometimes they'll challenge me and they'll say, actually, you know what? I'm just really nervous right now. And I did crush it with this metric and let me show you. And there's been some of those examples where like I've then hired the person. But I really like regardless of if they're a social media manager or a demand gen person or an ops person, like, if they don't understand like their role in driving the business forward and they can't connect the dots to me and walk me through the funnel because every role has a funnel in some way or another, then that's how I can just tell if they're ready to be on my team or not. God, I think it'd be so much fun if we did a round two where you interviewed me for a role. That would be absolutely hey. terrifying. <laughs> never never, never going to happen, Ryan. I want to ask you, because you said about the thousand people there, how do you build such a high quality candidate pipe? That's the biggest thing that I hear founders say, literally is where do I even source the candidates? How did you do that? Yeah, so that's a great question. And you know, it was something that stressed me out a lot early on because given my background being in Asia Pacific, in APAC, I would almost always do the recruiting myself because I knew the marketing landscape well. I knew all the great folks there. But when I came to the US, you know, my network really wasn't there and I didn't really realize that. And so I actually worked with an amazing recruiting partner called um, they're an agency here in Chicago called Hunt Club. And they're amazing. They're like this influencer recruitment platform. And basically they're really high rated on G2 as well, which is how I found them. And basically like they helped me with a lot of my really strategic hires and as well as internal recruiting at G2. But I think like what I'm really big on is like whether I'm working with an external recruiter or an internal recruiter, like I have them join my first 10 interviews for like any role I'm hiring for. And they learn really quickly what questions I'm asking and then they can ask the same questions and I'll tell them like what I'm looking for. So like if you ask a person this and they say, here are the three options of what they can say, only put people through the answer A versus B and C. And so I try and just like make it really simple because it's a hard job recruiting, right? And especially with like for a new leader when you don't know their style. So I've found working really closely with recruiters and helping them understand what you're looking for and just being really involved is key. But again, yeah, I would spend like a day a week, like one fifth of my week early on was recruiting, which was hell because, you know, I was trying to build a team, change strategy, you know, get connected with sales and do all the things. And I think that's just the reality of a new executive going into a, into a fast growth company. It's a bit crazy. The other element that also struck me, you said crazy there, and you also said about moving from five to 70 in terms of marketing. How did you think about kind of building culture and that team camaraderie in such a short time with people that haven't worked together and are all new to the same company? How do you think about building that fabric and culture in such a new but big team, actually? You know, we're really fortunate, I think, at G2 and that we have a really distinct and really strong peak culture. And peak is, it stands for performance, entrepreneurial spirit, authenticity, and kindness. And so we hire really great people already. So, you know, I was lucky in that, like, there was already this beautiful fingerprint per se of like what our DNA as a team would eventually be. For me, it was more so finding like top performers that could be additive to the current team we had. And so, you know, naturally, there was a few folks on the original team that just didn't fit this new DNA of me as a, as a leader within our org and weren't kind of on board for the direction and journey that I was going to take it. And that's totally fine, right? Like, I don't think everyone is right for every leader. And, and I don't think everyone can scale up with every company, right? Some people are great for smaller companies versus larger companies. And so I think I'm just pre pretty meticulous and pretty just transparent and open in that I don't expect everyone on my team today to be the right people on my team in a year's time. Like, and, and what I mean by that is like, if, if in a year's time, they're like, wow, this is getting too big. There's too much process or it's going too fast. You know, I want that feedback. But if that feedback's not aligned with where I think we need to be, then no hard feelings, right? Like maybe in a year, 
years time, I won't be the right CMO for this. I'm not too attached to that. And so I think I'm just really real with my employees about those sorts of things. And I tell them if a company reaches out to me for a job offer, like why I decided to stay at G2 and what I factored in so that they can do the same thing and factor into their decisions when they're thinking of leaving, maybe the same things that I would factor into my decisions because I've learned from my own career of it's not always better to leave a company that you love for another role that's going to pay you 50% more. They're paying you more money typically because their culture sucks or they want you or it's not going to be as good as it possibly is and that's why they have to pay for you. So that's sort of how I think about it. No, listen, I absolutely love it and I'm, I'm super envious of how kind of at peace and chilled you are with yourself. I'm completely the opposite. I'm permanently frantic. I do want to touch on one thing though, Ryan, which is that before the quick fire, and it's obviously G2 rebranded, G2 crowd, now G2. So how did you approach the rebrand and what was kind of the biggest lessons that you really took from the process? It's a big thing for any company to go through, especially at the stage that G2 is at. Yeah, it definitely was. You know, it was a few different things and, and it really, it's funny because I've always kind of like had a bit of disdain. Maybe it was jealousy, I'm not sure, or just pure disdain, but I've always kind of like been a little bit anti like branding CMOs and I always viewed myself as the demand gen CMO. Like I love numbers, I love to show results, I need to drive revenue. Like I get like a lot of personal value and worth from being able to show my bottom line contribution to whatever it is that I'm working on. And so that was naturally like the most important thing for me first up when I joined G2. And then once I got, you know, demand and traffic and everything humming, the next thing for me that I kind of realized was that, you know, we started as a reviews platform six years ago, right? Because B2B buying was broken. There wasn't enough transparency. The analyst firms whom I won't mention are completely pay to play. Everyone knows that, you know, everyone can knows that and they hate having to pay to play that game. But they have to do that because there hasn't been anyone like G2 to try and kind of like rinse out the scum of the analyst firms. And so that was like, you know, what started the company. But I think what I like realized over like my first sort of six, 12 months after joining was that reviews are just a means to an end. You know, like reviews are useful, but they're only useful because they help you find software. So I was like, okay, maybe we need to make our branding more about the software. And then I kind of was like thinking about it more and spitballing it with my team. And I was like, but no, software also is just a means to an end, right? Like you and I right now are talking on Zoom. I love Zoom. Eric Wan is speaking at our conference in Chicago next month. Wicked platform. But if you and I were in the same office together, like we wouldn't be on Zoom. Like it is a means to an end for you and I to connect. Just as like I have Google Docs pulled up on my screen right now because I didn't have a pad next to me and I'm using it there. But the point being is that like software, if I'm buying marketing automation software, I don't actually give a shit about the software. I care about the output of the software. Like does it drive me revenue? If I'm buying accounting software, I care like does it help me close my books faster? And so it was kind of like a bit of a revelation that myself and our CEO was having that we were like, wow, we've kind of made this too much about reviews. And actually we need to get back to the essence of like, why do people start companies in the first place? And they start them because they're passionate about doing whatever the company is that they created. Software is a means for them to find that out and to create and to live their dreams. And so that's sort of what was kind of, I guess, the catalyst for us focusing more on like, we are a platform for businesses to reach their potential. And the reality is you can't reach your potential in business without people, without products. And by products, I mean software and without process. And by process, I mean strategy, right? So you need smart people. They need to have like the right strategies and they need to have the right products, tools, services, etc. to execute on those strategies. And so that was really the catalyst of the rebrand early on. I mean, I, I personally didn't love the look and feel of our brand anyways, but I think a rebrand that just comes from like an aesthetic purpose doesn't have as much weight behind it. Not to say that you shouldn't do it, but I think it's harder because you'll come across, I think, more 
more folks that don't get it. Whereas I kind of like fundamentally changed internally, like our mindset about who we were as a company. And so the old brand is no longer felt adequate enough to be who we knew we could be because we're building a 10 to $30 billion like marketplace business. We see ourselves and, you know, TechCrunch called us like the Amazon for B2B. So like for us to like fill those shoes and we've got a, a really fucking long way to go, you know, and we, we realized that, but we really realized that we needed to think about ourselves in a much more consumerized way. So now we're really focused on how we can consumerize B2B buying because it's still broken, even though it's more transparent thanks to us. The fact that I still have to speak to 10 different sales reps and do 20 different demo calls and all of that, like that's broken and we're building a new way for that to work for buyers, to empower buyers to have more control than sellers. And I'm really excited about that. I'm sorry, last question before the quick fire. I know I keep saying that, but I have to have one more. And it's, you know, you and the team have achieved so much over the past 24, 36 months. I, I want to ask, in terms of the achievements, and once you achieve what you do, do you pat yourself on the back? Do you take that moment of appreciation for what's been achieved? Or is it always eyes on the prize, goals ahead? How do you think about taking stock versus just always going for the next goal? I mean, I think I've gotten better with that lately, especially with such a large team. I don't know. I like, I like to pat myself on the back. I like to pat my team on the back. And then I like to climb a new peak. And that's kind of all about our company mantra and philosophy is that like, hey, like once you solve and climb that peak and you get to the summit, fucking celebrate. Like, and then like, let's set our sights on a bigger mountain and climb to that next peak. And so kind of just like, is like truly in the DNA of our company. And that comes from our CEO, Godard, who I know you've spoken with before. And so, um, yeah, but we, we definitely celebrate along the journey. I've never been as happy and as satisfied and as fulfilled in a job as I am at G2. And I, I've never worked with so many amazing people. So I, I feel really lucky. It's amazing to hear, but I do want to move into now, as I promised, the quick fire round rhyme. So I say a short statement and you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. I haven't looked at any of your questions, so this will definitely be very authentically reactive. It's called thinking on your feet. So what do you know now about the process, which you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time in marketing? You know, I had a really great executive coach that HubSpot got me a few years back. And what I learned through her, her name was Margie back in Sydney, was that like, it's not just about results. Like results are important, but relationships are super important too. And I used to be one of those like very gung-ho, very like eyes on the results kind of person. And I would have pissed off. And I know I pissed off a lot of people in the process because I was so laser focused on results. And I think now I balance results and relationships much better than I did. What's the biggest BS that you hear in the world of marketing continuously? I'm not sure if I can actually like pinpoint it as to one thing. I, I mean, there is a, a shit ton of BS in the industry. I think for me, kind of like what I alluded to with my hiring questions and stuff like that is nothing's BS if, if the person can explain it, right? And so when I'm interviewing a social media manager, right? Like when they tell me like, you know, yeah, my goal was to increase engagement. That sounds like BS to me. But then my follow-up is cool. Like what is engagement to you? And if they say like likes and comments and stuff, I'm like, okay, cool. Like what are those likes and comments mean for your business? And like, if they, if it just stops at, well, you know, that's important to us. If they can't say, well, you know, for every like we get, we generate $5 of revenue or 10 new fans equals $10 more revenue for us because we know that fans buy within 30 days of following us. If there really isn't substance to anything in marketing, I, I think it's BS. Yeah. Sorry. I can't give you a perfect answer there in terms of like one thing. Cause there's, I think there's just like a lot of BS folks in marketing. They're good at spinning. Tell me ABM, is it the buzzword of the day or is there real substance behind this? Do you think? No, definitely not. I mean, it's, it's a buzzword because ABM now is taking on more of a software-oriented perspective. But ABM has been around for decades. You know, whether it was like 
running an event with like CMOs because they are strategic accounts, getting those CMOs in the room, that is account-based marketing, right? Direct mail, sending it to target lists is account-based marketing. So definitely not BS. I just don't think every business needs to be doing ABM just like any other form of marketing. It depends on the business. So ABM works beautifully well for companies that have a high ACV, longer sales cycle, etc. doesn't scale at all though for companies that sell on mass to small and medium businesses. So HubSpot wouldn't do any ABM. So, you know, I think like, again, to my point earlier, like you want to, as a marketer, have as many different skills that you can kind of apply to the challenge that the business you're in has, but you don't need to deploy all of them at the same time. What's the MOG most respect and admire and why, Ryan? There is a few. It's I, I wouldn't say there's like one. I have like one necessarily. Like I really love to have there's different things of different CMOs to me that are amazing. So like you know I mentioned Kip at HubSpot. Like he is just one. He's one of the most skilled kind of like CMOs in that he is amazing at the CMO level at building strategy at driving team building. But then he's also just a freaking incredible technical marketer, right? Like you can't like bullshit him with anything, even if he doesn't do it daily. Like he's just so connected to consumers and how people consume content and how the world works. So he's amazing. Jamie Gilpin at Route Social, their CMO is amazing. She's like, I feel like her X factor is product marketing and driving demand and customer attention. Dave King, even at Asana, fucking love Dave. I think his secret sauce and what I admire about him is like his branding is like Asana just is a gorgeous brand, like incredible. And then this guy isn't a CMO, he's a CEO, but I'd say like Benioff at Salesforce, you know, he's essentially the CMO there, which is why they have a new CMO every year because they don't last very long. But like, I think he's brilliant at storytelling and at reinvention from a company perspective. And I think most CMOs are lacking in that. So yeah, there's just a few examples, but Kip's probably my number one. I, I love that guy. No, I couldn't agree more on Benioff. And uh, I've got Dave on the show tomorrow. So that's exciting to hear. Oh, awesome. I do want to ask one final question. What do you think is the optimal relationship between CMO and CEO? I mean, in my world, and the way I like to think about it is that I think the CMO should become the CEO eventually. And that's what I would like at G2. Um, no, no. But I think, I think like the CMO is this really interesting position whereby like their fingers are kind of across all of the business. And a good CMO is connected to, you know, pre-customer, post-customer, product strategy. And I really think today, like the CMO or the chief digital officer is really well suited to be able to step up into a COO or CEO role. But to the relationship specifically, like if I think of mine and Godard's relationship, I'd say we're connected at the hip. We very rarely don't see eye to eye. And I'm really fortunate to work with someone that I just am so aligned with. Is he crazy at times? Yes. Am I crazy? Yes. Like I think anyone that wants to be an executive is a bit batshit crazy. But I think CMO and CEO just needs to have really tight relationship because the marketing and the public face of a company is so public that if you don't, it's just a setup for failure. And I think that's why you see so many CMOs having such a short tenure. And I think, you know, all the stats show that CMOs have the the shortest tenures at companies, unfortunately. So I think a lot of that comes down to a lack of relationship with the CEO. Ryan, as I said, I've been so looking forward to this one for a long time. We barely touched the schedule, which is always a sign of a great episode. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Harry. It was great to chat.
What can I say? I said it at the beginning, and I'll say it again. Huge fan of Ryan right here. And if you'd like to see more from Ryan, which is a must, you can find him on Twitter, at Ryan Benici. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here. You can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. However, before we leave you today, you have to check out Chorus.ai, the number one conversational intelligence platform, allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that close deals and really work. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps way more effective or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and many more amazing companies already using and loving Chorus. That's Chorus.ai. And if Chorus powers your sales team to be more effective, we need to discuss Pantheon, the web ops platform built for agility. Pantheon powers more than 300,000 websites, including some of the most well-known brands like Tableau and the United Nations. Pantheon's web ops platform gives superpowers to your web teams, making it simple to manage your websites quickly iterate and optimize to deliver engaging digital experiences and provide the fastest hosting and highest level of security and uptime. And finally, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to David J, founder at Agree.com. Agree.com provides attorney-approved contracts and payments for businesses and creatives. Smart creatives and businesses use Agree.com to make their business serve their life, not the other way around. Hi, Harry. The holy grail is creating creating a feedback loop early in a product development process. Building a product is kind of like baking cookies. So you get the MVP out there. That's the cookie dough. You let people try it. If they don't like the cookie dough, you can still add ingredients and change it up. But if you've already baked the cookie and you let people try it, well, now you can't make any changes because you can't rebake the cookie. Things start to crumble. Things start to fall apart. Absolutely love that analogy, David. And absolutely, being decisive is really important for successful growth. And for more on successful growth, WePay offers payments you can bank on. Now a JP Morgan Chase company, it offers you payments with bank scale and SMB distribution channels in addition to modern technology. Visit WePay.com forward slash Harry to find out more. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. I cannot thank you enough for tuning in for showing your support. It really means so much to me and I can't wait to bring you another very special episode next week.